Well, this is our third week in this series that we have called um, Fake News. Last week, if you were here, um, I told you how fascinated I am with this entire concept of fake news, acknowledging, of course, how dangerous and disastrous it is for democracy and so on. Um, Last week, I said that one of the things that fascinated me about the fake news is about why it is that we're so receptive to it. Well, one of the other things that I've been curious about is how it gets generated, right? Like, what is the source or the origin of a story that is fake news? And as I've been kind of processing this and reading stories and whatever, one of the, one of the patterns that I've noticed is that oftentimes a fake news story is actually a real news story that has somehow been distorted kind of in one dimension or along one axis. You know, like a fake news story is essentially um, somebody takes a, a kernel of truth and then focusing on, on it, exaggerating it, overemphasizing it, blowing it out of proportion, suddenly that true story becomes an untrue story of fake news. Um, one of the examples that I uh, remember from the election cycle in the United States when all of this really started to take place was the story of Hillary Clinton's health. There was this, this genuine footage of Hillary struggling, like almost collapsing on the sidewalk and being helped into a vehicle because she was, she was physically ill. And, and that kernel of truth that Hillary Clinton is physically ill was somehow then focused in on and zoomed in and exaggerated and, and blown out of proportion until the story became Hillary Clinton is dying and not well enough to be a part of the, to assume the presidency. In fact, from that moment on, every sort of physical quirk, every odd motion that Hillary would perform with her body was somehow reinterpreted as to be a part of this illness that should disqualify her from the presidency. It's sort of the, that kernel of truth that gets blown out of proportion and becomes fake news, which is, I think, exactly the way that a lot of the fake news around the good news about Jesus gets formed. Two weeks ago, Jeff uh, explained to us in the, the simplest terms possible the good news about Jesus Christ, that, that we have been invited to live a life of love through an act of love performed by a God who is love. That we've been invited into a life of loving God and loving people through the loving act of Jesus, his life of love, his death that he died in love, his resurrection that proves his love, all of which was the result of a God who so loved the world that he sent his son. And if that's the good news, last week we looked at one variation of the way that good news becomes fake news. We talked about how the fake news of what God really wants is your religiosity, your religious behavior, right? Which takes the kernel of truth that some of our love for God and love for people is going to be lived out in our lives in the form of behaviors that have been traditionally called religious behaviors, Um, But it kind of takes that and blows it out of proportion and says, no, 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 that's actually what God wants from your life. And we said last week that the fake news is that your life with God depends on what you do for God. But the good news is that your life with God depends on what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. 
Well, this week in a, in a second kind of fake news, um, we look at a different way in which a kernel of truth gets blown out of proportion and turns the good news of Jesus into fake news. And for this week, the fake news is that a life with God is somehow, the key to a life with God is about embracing or emphasizing our sinfulness. Um, the kernel of truth that this is rooted in, again, comes straight out of the pages of scripture. In Romans chapter three, starting in verse 10, the apostle Paul writes this. He says, there is no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands, who truly knows what God is like and what God wants from us. And there's no one who seeks God. There's no one who even cares. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There's no one who does good. Not even one. At the heart of the passage is the Apostle Paul's desire to communicate to this tiny Roman church the universal truth that every single one of us is a sinner. That every single one of us live lives that has deviated from who God has created us to be. From the things that God has commanded us uh, to do. He goes on and he describes poetically, well, he's quoting the Old Testament, but poetically describing some of what that looks like. He says, you know, he talks about the ways that we um, hurt each other with our cruel and harsh and deceptive words, which he calls poison. Our words have the ability to kill a person's spirit, a relationship. He talks about the ways that we accidentally and uh, sometimes purposely hurt each other, leaving a path of, of pain and misery in our wake because of our behavior towards each other, where we damage other people by what we do. The ways that we break the peace in people's lives and in our relationships. And Paul says, there's no one really, there's no one that's exempt from that. All of us fall into these patterns of behavior. In the 20th century, probably the most popular way to summarize the good news about Jesus was in a form that was called the four spiritual laws. Um, and the first spiritual law says that God loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life. But the second spiritual law reads like this. It says humanity is sinful and separated from God. Therefore, they cannot know and experience God's love and plan for their life. It's like the idea that our lives are filled with sin is kind of one of the four things you need to know about what a life with God is all about, according to the four spiritual laws. And you know what? To be perfectly frank, most of us don't need the four spiritual laws and most of us don't need the scriptures to tell us that the world and our lives are filled with sin. Malcolm Muggeridge, who was a writer in the last century, says, the depravity of humanity is the most empirical, empirically verifiable reality. It's really the only part of the Christian tradition that comes with empirical proof of its truthfulness is the sinfulness of humanity, right? Like all you have to do is watch the news or, you know, read the comments section on the internet, on any page of the internet. Just be around children for Pete's sake. The world is a sinful place. Uh, just look in the mirror. In a moment of honest 
reflection. I've talked to you before about this, this Anglican prayer of confession. We confess, God, that we have sinned against you in thought and word and deed by what we've done and by what we've left undone. Stand in front of the mirror one day in a moment of sober honesty and reflect on your thought life. The things that go through your head that nobody else knows about. Think about your verbal life. The ways in which you talk to and especially maybe the ways in which you talk about other people. Think about your actions. The way you treat the people in your life. Think about the things that you do when nobody's looking. The things that you have done that you will take to your grave. It's not hard to verify the idea that as people we live lives that are uh, sinful. Though not everybody recognizes it. I get that. Actually, Malcolm Muggeridge's whole quote reads like this. He says, the depravity of humanity is at once the most empirically verifiable reality, but at the same time, the most intellectually resisted fact. Um, not everybody agrees that our lives are filled with sin. And I think for a variety of reasons. I think there are, there are some people, you know, I, I think all of us to some degree have been so affected by our culture that we have kind of adopted our culture's perspective to sin. In our culture, honestly, the only real sin in our culture is inauthenticity. The only sin is not being yourself. The only sin is not following your heart. If you follow your heart, then you are living exactly the life that God wants you to live. And honestly, I believe that authenticity, being able to be who you are, is incredibly important. But I also believe in Jeremiah 17 verse 9 that says, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? I, I also believe that your heart will trick you. You can't just always follow your heart because it will lie to you and take you to places that you never thought you would go. I think there's some folks who would hesitate to say, no, no, you know, that they're really sinful people because we don't always see our own sinfulness. Sometimes because some of the things that we do, we don't realize are sinful. Some of the times because some of the things that we do that other people have called sinful, we minimize and say are no big deal, right? Like who cares if I watch some porn? Who's really getting hurt? In Psalm 19 verse 12, it says this, but who can discern their own errors? God, forgive my hidden faults. The, the psalmist acknowledges that there is sin that resides in us that we can't see. That is not even possible for us to discern. And the prayer is kind of, God, um, you have to rescue me from the stuff I don't even know about. That's how deep it goes. I think there are probably some people who just honestly don't care. I don't, I don't care what God wants for my life. I'm going to do what I want. And who are you to call it a sin? Actually, the very next verse in the psalm addresses that sort of willfulness that in, in our attitude that we all have sometimes. It says, keep your servant also from willful sins. 
May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. The prayer is kind of, God, would you save me from this attitude that says, who cares what God thinks? I'm just going to do what I want. The whole idea is that the scripture is really clear that we all live lives that are tainted by sin. That is a kernel of truth. But the good news about Jesus becomes fake news when that kernel of truth is blown out of proportion and, and exaggerated and overemphasized and become too significant. When we turn that kernel of truth into the truth, the good news becomes fake news. Right? Like I'm struck by the fact, I, I have a lot of issues with the four spiritual laws. I, I don't think it summarizes the good news about Jesus at all, at least in part because um, it's all about me. God loves me and has a wonderful plan for my life, but I'm a sinner and blah, blah, blah. It's all about me and the good news is about Jesus. It's not about me. But one of the struggles that I have uh, with the four spiritual laws is that the only thing that it says about me, the only truth that it tells about me is that I'm sinful and that sin has broken my relationship with God. As though that is the only component of my identity. According to the four spiritual laws, that is 25% of everything you need to know about a life with Jesus. And that's the only thing you need to know about you is that you're sinful. And when that when that notion of our sinfulness goes from being a kernel of truth to being the whole truth about who we are, then the good news becomes fake news because then what happens is we turn the good news about Jesus into a shame-based sin management life coaching system, right? The logic, right, goes like this. If God loves me and has a wonderful plan for my life, but my sin disconnects me from God's love and his plan for my life, then I need to be super focused on my sin. I need to remain super aware of my sin. I need to have it in front of me all the time. I need to feel the shame of my sin in my life so that I won't choose that sin anymore and I can reconnect myself in relationship with God. In, in that version of what it looks like to live in a relationship with Jesus, the most mature form of faith believes, as Martin Luther says, that humanity is a dunghill and can only exhale foul odors. People are so thoroughly corrupted that it is impossible for them to produce good actions. Sin is their nature. They can't help but commit it. Sin may do their best. They, people may do their best to be good and still their every action is unavoidably bad. They commit a sin as often as they draw their breath. In Martin Luther's vision, making the, the truth about our sinfulness into the truth about us converts the gospel, converts my identity into the shameful awareness that I'm a wretched human being that can't accomplish anything good, but thank God for a reason I don't understand, Jesus died to forgive me. That becomes the most mature version or understanding of who I am in relation, relation to God. And I think a lot of us are tempted to live in that space. And one of the reasons that I suspect that is because I get asked very often why I don't preach about sin more. As though talking about sin is actually the center part of my job description and the most important thing I can do when I preach a sermon. 
And to be honest, sometimes I wonder when people ask that, why don't you preach about sin more? Sometimes I wonder, you know, whose sin do you want me to preach about? Because <laughs> I suspect that sometimes what people mean is, I want you to preach about the sin of the world, about all those bad people out there and why they're such terrible human beings. And I know that it's important at times to prophetically denounce sin in culture, but I, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul says, is it my business to judge the sin of the world? It isn't. It's not, that's not the job of the church to condemn the sin of the world. Jesus says he didn't come to condemn the world, but to rescue it. No, not condemning. I think sometimes what people mean is they want me to preach about other people's sin. You know, so-and-so who's making these decisions or this up-and-coming generation who does A, B, and C. You need to preach about that and you need to denounce that and whatever. And I won't ever do that. Uh, Because Jesus says that the best spent energy we have is spent removing the plank from our own eye rather than worrying about all the little specks in everybody else's eye. How about we deal with our own stuff first? But I suspect that there are some people when they say, why don't you preach about sin? That what they mean is, why don't you preach about my sin? Why don't you call out my sin in concrete, tangible ways so that I can feel shame about the kind of sinful person I, I have been? And that shame will motivate me to change. And the reason I will never do that is because shame doesn't motivate anybody to change. Shame, just to be clear, is different than guilt. Guilt is when I feel bad about what I've done. Shame is when I feel bad about who I am about my identity. And shame is this kind of never-ending gift. It's a gift that keeps on giving because what happens is we end up, you know, you make a bad decision, you sin or whatever, and then you feel the shame of your sin and you're like, I don't want to feel that shame anymore. I don't want to be that person anymore. So what I need to do is I need to keep my sin in front of my face all the time so that I can choose to not do it and then I won't feel shame anymore. Except Here's what happens when you keep that sin in front of your face all the time. Instead of eradicating the shame, all you do is you deepen it. You entrench it. You perpetuate it because you're continually looking at what a wretched human being you are. And the shame just keeps going deeper and deeper. And, by the way, focusing on the sin doesn't help you to choose not to sin. Because psychologically, the truth is that we do the things that we focus on. Right, so if you're trying to quit smoking and you walk around all day saying, I'm not going to smoke, I'm not going to smoke, I am not going to smoke, I'm not going to smoke. You know what you're going to do that day? Uh, you're going to smoke. And I now know that <laughs> across all three locations there are people who are itching to run outside and have a cigarette because I just did that to you. I'm sorry about that. But the truth is we actually do the thing that we focus on. So if you focus on your sin, you will continue to propagate sin. The other reason I'll never do that is because it is, bears no relation to the character of God. Right, today's Father's Day. We have sung that God is a good, good father. What kind of father makes it his mission to perpetuate the shame of his children by constantly shoving their failures in their face? We would not say that that's a good father. We would say that's an abusive father. 
God is not like that. One of my greatest fears in parenting my own girls is that I correct them too much, that I am sending them the message that they are never able to perform at a high enough level to earn my approval and that I'm filling their lives with shame. God would never do that. The way to leave sin behind and to become a new person that leaves shame in your wake is not to focus on your sin, it's to focus on the truth. In John chapter eight, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you're really my disciples. And then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. It's the truth that sets us free. And somebody says, well, that's, I'm focusing on the truth of my sinfulness. No, 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 no. That is a kernel of truth that you've turned into the truth. But that is not the truest thing about you. See, if you read the Bible from the front, It's in Genesis chapter three, the third chapter of the whole Bible that you discover that all of us are sinful people who choose to walk away from God and who separate our relationship, uh, separate ourselves from relationship with him because of our sin. That's in Genesis chapter three, the third chapter of the Bible. You know what you discover actually two chapters earlier in the first chapter of the Bible, which is actually the very first thing that's written about any of us? In Genesis chapter one, it says this. So God created mankind in God's own image. In the image of God, God created them. Male and female, God created them. Your sinfulness is not the truest thing about you. That's not the most fundamentally true thing about you. The most fundamentally true thing about you is that you're created in the image of God. That you are the highlight, the pinnacle, the climax of God's creative activity. That he has created you in love and out of love to be a creature who relates to him in love. Part of what it means to be in the image of God is to be a relational creature who lives in relationship of love with God. He's created you in love and out of love to be a creature who lives in love with the people who live around you, male and female. In community, he created them. He's created you in love and out of love to be a creature that is the vehicle of God's love for the world, protecting and taking care of this world and this creation that God loves so much. That is fundamentally true about who you were created to be. That is more true about you than your sinfulness. I said to you before that if you want to look into the mirror, you can catch a glimpse of your sinfulness. But I want you to imagine that mirror has a crack all the way down the middle. When you look into that cracked mirror, the image that you see is recognizably you, but it is a distorted image of who you really are. It is not the truth about who you are. It is a distorted version of who it is you really are. That's what sin is. Sin is not your identity. Sin is the thing that distorts the identity that God gave you when he created you. Sin is the stain on your favorite outfit that you can't get out. You need someone else to get out of that outfit for you. But it does not destroy the outfit. Sin is the body damage on your brand new car that you need someone else to hammer out for you. But it does not make your car worthless. Sin is the virus in your computer that you need someone else to clean out for you. 
but it does not mean that your computer is trash. Your, your outfit is not the stain. Your car is not the damage. Your computer is not the virus and you are not your sin. That is not who God has created you to be. He has created you in his image to be a creature who lives a life of love. That's who you're created to be. The truth about you is that you're created to live a life of love in the image of God and that the truth of you is that you were recreated to live a life of love in the image of Christ. In Romans chapter 8 verse 1 it says this, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus the law of the spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death when you put your faith in Jesus Christ which I talked about last week believing that Jesus is who he says he is and can do what he says he can do and that you need him to do that in your life to forgive you and change you to become the person of love he's created you to be if you believe in Jesus and you trust in Jesus to put your whole life in his care and you faithfully live the way of Jesus no matter what happens in your life when you put your faith faith in Jesus, he puts his life in you in the form of the Holy Spirit. And from that moment on, your life is no longer defined and controlled by the power of sin at at work in you. From that moment on, your life is defined and controlled by the power of the Holy Spirit. You are no longer who sin says you are. You are now who the Holy Spirit through Christ in, uh, in God has said that you are. Someone who is slowly but surely, day by day, being transformed from the inside out by the Holy Spirit to be somebody who is sinning against Christ less and becoming like Christ more every single day, which is always only ever living in the way of love. That's who you're being recreated to be. And for somebody who's being recreated in the image of Christ, it says there is no condemnation for that person. Condemnation is the guilty verdict that sin hangs around your neck because of the things that you've done. The Holy Spirit, because of Jesus, comes into your life, removes the verdict, and now there is no guilt, no shame, no condemnation for the person who's in Christ. If you have put your faith in Jesus and you're living life in relationship with him and you are focusing your attention and your life on the sin and shame of your life you are living out of sync with what the Holy Spirit is doing in your life that is actually sin because what you're doing you are living in the past of your sin and shame while Jesus Christ is living in the present of your forgiveness and transformation and taking you into the future of being a brand new person living a life of love You're living out of sync with Jesus. It's actually even worse than that. God has said your sin and shame is dealt with. It's forgiven and forgotten. A thing that is gone. And you've said, actually, God, I can appreciate why you think that. But you're wrong. And my sin and my shame is real. And I need to focus on it every day. You are making yourself out to be more worthy of judging what you're really like than God. You're created to live a life of love in the image of God. You're being recreated to live a life in the image of Christ, a life of love in the image of Christ. That's who you really are. So you know what I tell people when people ask me, why don't you preach about sin? That's what I tell them every time. I preach about sin every single week. It is literally the only thing I talk about. Because Jesus was once asked, 
Give me the lowdown. What's the bottom line on a life of faith? And Jesus said, love God and love people. If you do these things, you will never sin. You know what that means? That sin, the definition of sin is to do the opposite of love. Sin is the opposite of love. Sin is anti-love. Sin is unlove. Sin is non-love. Turn that around. What that means is love is the opposite of sin. Love is anti-sin. Love is unsin. Love is non-sin. And so every single Sunday when I stand on this stage and says, you know what, friends? God loves you. And out of that love that God has poured into your life, what had happened if by the power of the Holy Spirit, because of Jesus Christ, we learned to be people who love God, who love each other, and who love the world. And this is what I think it could look like every single week that I say that. What I'm saying is, how about we stop choosing sin and we start choosing love? Every time somebody chooses to stop living a life of unlove, do you know what the Bible calls that? That's repentance. When you choose to stop not loving, that's called repentance, even if I don't use the word. You know, what it's, you know what the Bible calls it when you choose to, in faith in Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, live a life of love? They call that faith. This is literally the only thing that I talk about. That the fake news is that the life God has called us into is a shame-based sin management life coaching system. The good news is that God has invited us to live a life of love through an act of love by the God of love. That God has invited us in relationship with him by putting our faith in Jesus Christ, to enter into a life where we love him with all that we are and all that we have, recognizing that he has loved us first, that he in love sent Christ who is love to live a life of love, to die a death out of love, to be raised to prove his love because God so loved the world. And to enter into that love and to receive the love of God and to respond to the love of God by loving God with all that we are and all that we have. And then out of that relationship with love, we would learn to love ourselves, to recognize that we are not shameful, disgusting creatures who have no business being in a relationship with God because of how sinful we are, but that we are genuinely loved by God who has forgiven and transformed us by the power of the Holy Spirit because of Jesus Christ when we put our faith in him. And now because we know that of the way that God has loved us, we can learn to love ourselves. And out of that love, then we can learn to love each other. In love, in the love of God and out of the love of God, caring for and protecting each other so that we can live in deep community with each other. We can learn to love the world in the love of God, out of love, the love of God, protecting and caring for God's world and for our city. Um, especially the poor and the forgotten and the unloved with the compassion and loving justice of God. So we can pour ourselves out in the love of God, out of the love of God, caring for and protecting for God's planet, this creation that he, that he made and that he loves and one day wants to recreate in the image of his love. Now the fake news is that God sees us 
that our identity before God is as shameful, sinful, uh, wretched beings who don't deserve Christ. That a life with God is a shame-based sin management system. The good news is that it's actually a life of love that we're invited into through an act of love by a God of love. And that is the bottom line of the good news. Let's pray. Father, I suspect that there are people here this morning who came in carrying a heavy, heavy load of guilt and shame. Who know what they did this week and who feel unworthy to be in this place. I pray that like a good, good father, you would overwhelm their shame with your love. That you would fill their spirit with a sense that they are loved and embraced. And by your spirit, give them the power and the courage to step into love through Jesus Christ. God, would you teach us to see ourselves the way you see us and to lean in and to pursue you so that we can experience the life of love you have for us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.